I'm Julia Gerlach, Managing Editor of No-Till Farmer. Welcome to the latest episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. This program featuring stories about the past, present, and future of no-till farming is sponsored by Calmer Cornheads. For more information about Calmer Cornheads, visit them at calmercornheads.com. That's C-A-L-M-E-R-C-O-R-N-H-E-A-D-S.com. I encourage you to subscribe to the series, which is available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about upcoming episodes as soon as they're released. In the 1960s, John Tai's father, J.M. Tai, found himself dissatisfied with the cotton planters that were available on the market and decided he could do better. Those early planters he made put the Tai company on the map. Several years later, now under the direction of John, the company took on the no-till grain drill, convinced by research showing that there were profits to be made in narrow-row soybeans. In this podcast, no-till farmer editor Frank Lesseter talks with John Tai about his time running the Tai company, sharing stories about how the company was instrumental in converting farmers to narrow-row double-cropped soybeans, trying to work out licensing deals with John Deere, and more. Though the Thai company was swallowed up by Agco in 1995, the Thai drill holds an iconic place in no-till history. In 1970, BASF introduced the herbicide Bazigran to control agricultural weeds, and John Thai saw the opportunity to pair the chemical with no-till soybeans. We'll join Frank Lesseter and John Thai just as they get into their discussion about why this idea appealed to farmers. Folks in the Illinois, Indiana, Missouri area uh, thought that, well, why can't we plant narrow soybeans after wheat and sure. double crop? Double crop, right. And the, the, the problem there was uh, if you wanted to get it done on time, you really didn't have time to harvest the wheat, go in and plow the stuff and get the seed bed all ready to go. So what you wanted to do was find a way to go plant those narrow row soybeans sort of right behind the combine that was combining the wheat. Right. Uh, so we still we had the narrow row stuff to do that. And then we began to look at, well, how do you go into true no-till where they have not had a chance to do any seedbed preparation after taking the other crop off? And that's when we began to look at putting coulters in front of the double disc openers and those sorts of things to be able to to open up the true no-tilled ground to be able to plant soybeans in it. So in these early days, what kind of uh, drill widths were you using? Uh, again, the objective was to go in and do it on 8-inch spacing. We initially kind of started out with 10-inch because that was about as narrow as we could get the coulters. Yeah. And then we began to offset the coulters to be able to put them a little closer together and, and get to 8 inches. We tried some narrower than eight, back to like oh six and six and a half, or th that sort of uh, mm -hmm. spacing. But that began to have problems in being able to get the trash to work through the uh, the product because there was in, in some of the, the the wheat fields they had some fairly high levels of uh, uh, of leftovers from combining the wheat. So eight inch became sort of like as narrow as we could get and still be able to easily handle trash and work it through. So in these days, what kind of widths did you have on your drills? Uh, most of them were 20 feet wide. That was okay. the, kind of the six row, actually the, the 204 
or six 40-inch rows. And in the row crop business, folks typically thought of rows, and a row was 40 inches from right. good old days. Yeah, the dimension of the rear end of a mule was about right. 40 inches, and right. that was sort of, they tell me, that was kind of before my time. Right. They, they tell me that's how we that's how we found 40 inches as being the row width. So so six of those rows at 40 inches, 240 inches, you know, 20 feet. Yeah, and, and that became sort of the, the the standard. The problem is when you got uh, coulters and all of that stuff on there, it began to be fairly heavy to be able to pick up on a three point hitch. Mm-hmm. And, and and many of the farmers, most of the farmers, still wanted three-point hitch planting equipment because it was so much easier to handle and move and turn and, and that sort of stuff. Right. So when you when we look at double cropping in the 70s and when no-till was really getting started, and it was really popular in western Kentucky, and they were one of the leaders, pioneers in no-tilling soybeans behind wheat or barley, but they were using planters such as Alice Chalmers' planter. How did you get these people to convert to narrow rows on double cropping? It was really the result of the demonstrations that uh, BASF put on, where they would actually go in and, and do yield comparisons in the same area, same field, yield on 40 inches or 36 inches or whatever versus yield on eight inch. And there was a there was a continuing and demonstrable increase in yield. And mm-hmm. that that sort of convinced people to closer at near row. Right. When when you look at these demonstrations, I've had Roy Appaquist from Great Plains tell me that uh, they would go to the Milan Experiment Station in those early years for their field day, and he said the real leaders there would be Crustbuster, Great Plains, and Ty. And he told me more than once, man, did we learn a lot at that field day from farmers on what they really needed in a no-till drill. Indeed, we would uh, we would go to the field day every year. Uh, and it, it, as, as Roy said, it, you, you got a chance to talk to folks who would come to the Milan field day to right. sort of see what was new. And most of the machinery folks and the chemical people uh, used that opportunity to show them everything that was new. Mm-hmm. And you, you, you sort of brought your newest stuff, and then maybe over in the corner you might have like something experimental that you were thinking about. <laughs> yeah, and and you would. You would have farmers go over and look at it and kick the tires and you know give give you their opinion, but uh, you know as as you know from dealing with farmers for years, uh, farmers are not shy about giving you their opinion. Right, right, and they always got a better way. <laughs> well, th- they do, and in many cases, they actually do have a better way because right. they've been out in the field working with it a time or two, and they have they have worked some of the kinks out that perhaps those of us that were not that close to the field all the time did not do. Yeah, one of the things that we don't see today much of in no-till that we saw in the 70s was uh, farmers in those days were totally remodifying drills or planters or coming up with some crazy idea on their own. Some of them worked well, some of them never caught on, and some got picked up by manufacturers to build. Yes, in fact, a farmer in Illinois came up with something that he had sort of made on his own. He already had one of our drills. And he made one of these little carriers. He ran at it about three or four times before he got one that would sort of work to his his satisfaction. 
And then, unlike most farmers, he actually had the perseverance to go get a patent on some of the aspects of it. Yeah. It was not actually manufacturable in the current design, and he understood that. Right. And that was sort of what his pitch was, is, okay, I have something that works for me. Uh, I think uh, you guys ought to license it and make it manufacturable on large quantities and sell with the farmers. So we right. we reached an agreement with him to license his patent and uh, took it back and did uh, manufacturability, reliability, make it work for a number of years. That was a very popular unit. Mm-hmm. We, in fact, and this is probably not uh, widely known, but the John Deere folks, uh, had come out with a three-point hitch drill about that time. They decided that, yes, three-point hitch drills were going to be a thing. And they wanted to be able to no-till with their three-point hitch drills, but they didn't have a way to do that. So they bought uh, several of these units, took them to their uh, facility in Ankeny, uh, Iowa. Spending some time with them came to us and said, let's talk about... Uh, let's talk about you building these for us. We have two or three little changes we want to make that will make them kind of John Deere. And, and you can, you can make them for us and drop ship them to our dealers. And we thought, well, that's, that, that's a reasonable thing. Let's, let's pursue that a little further, but uh, kind of unknown to us, there was uh, an internal struggle between the marketing people at Deere that wanted to get product in the field and be able to sell their units. And the engineering people and right. the, the the struggle actually you know, put things off to the point that it didn't make a whole lot of sense for us to pursue it. So we we didn't pursue it then. And then in fact John Deere came out with, you know, kind of their own approach to a, a big no till drill. Previously all they had, had was a very small pasture renovation machine, which they had effectively licensed from uh, from a university. But that really was a pasture renovation machine. Not really a no-till planter for beans and that sort of thing. Well, that, I think that machine was uh, developed. The idea came from the University of Kentucky. That machine was on the market for a very short period of time because they had rotating colders, power-driven colders or something, and it didn't work very well. Yes, yes. Well, the, 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 it didn't work very well, and the maintenance cost was astronomical, as you can imagine. Right. It was like having a bunch of rotating saw blades sawing through right. the dirt. Uh, and if you had heavy dirt or rocks or whatever, you had, you had problems. Yep. I'm like you. I'm old enough to remember seeing that thing work. <laughs> well, a branch of our business was in pasture renovation. Right. We had done some work with uh, the Texas A&M folks who were looking at ways to renovate and upgrade pastures for cattle that didn't involve plowing the pasture up and replanting it. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of our first real venture into no-till was making a unit. We called it a pasture pleaser. I heard one of our marketing guys came up with that name, uh, but it was a, a very narrow unit. It was, it was basically two row or 80 inches mm-hmm. that seed boxes for three different kinds of seeds. Uh, grass seed and then fluffy native grass seed and then regular seed, uh, you know, wheat, barley, whatever. Uh, and it was, it was again, narrow enough that you could put it on a small tractor that a, a rancher might have and go out and renovate pasture. The A&M folks, again, did most of the field work on that 
where they would go out and renovate half a pasture and leave the other half and take pictures and and uh, get production information on pound gain for the cattle that were selling a lot of those pasture pleaser units and that seemed to spur the John Deere folks to decide to market this unit that the University of Kentucky folks had uh, had built as sort of a prototype. But as you noted, it it, uh, it didn't go far in the field. <laughs> well, talking about John Deere and the other majors, Case IH and the others, New Holland, and in the 70s, they kind of hoped the idea of no-till would go away because even then they wanted to sell bigger horsepower tractors and wider tillage tools, right? Right. There was there were a lot of a lot of money in that. There was good margin in the tillage and particularly in the trackers. And their dealers were not at all interested in seeing a production protocol that would reduce the number of hours that the tractors ran in the field every year because they made lots of money selling spare parts and doing maintenance on tractors. So Right. But then John Deere came along and made some progress in in some of their drills and planters and you know, if John Deere thinks no-till is going to work, then I guess it's okay for everybody. That kind of used to be the feeling, right? Indeed. Way way back when, in the early 70s, we were selling just standard three-point hitch drills for wheat and barley. Mm-hmm. And we had a unit, they would, they would put it on beds, and we had a unit, three-point hitch unit, that worked very well planting on beds, and nobody else had a drill that would do that. And I recall... Uh, with our distributor, the Gearmore folks in Arizona, we went in to see a John Deere dealer. And the John Deere dealer, in all seriousness, said to me, uh, if God had intended there to be three-point hitch drills, John Deere would be building one. <laughs> and and he, was not inter- he was not interested in talking about them. So, Right. Well, you go back to the 70s and 80s, and the real progress made with no-till was the short-line manufacturers like yourself. and the, the majors didn't have the big breakthroughs, and their attitude always was, well, we got to drill, we got to platter, it'll work under all tillage conditions. Yeah, and it's like you really don't need no-till anyway. You really need to go out there and till the soil occasionally. Right. Uh, that was, that, was, that kind of came back to what you just pointed out earlier. Their business was making and selling big tractors and big tillage equipment, uh, and, and anything that, that varied from that didn't interest them. So if a farmer wanted something, he really had to go to a short line manufacturer to to find it. Right, and I I know you I know you've mentioned several times that a couple of the leaders in the no till planting field were Alice Chambers and Fleischer, who had ridge till units. <clears throat> but what's what's interesting to me with ridge till is it's never really caught on. One of the big problems was cultivating twice, and that would take place when you should be making hay. But when you look at strip till today, many of the things that, that worked with ridge till they're using they're using deep banding, they're using controlled traffic, they're um, a specific placement of fertilizers and. Uh, I kind of smile at that because I remember when people used to badmouth ridge till, and now it shows up in strip till. A, a part of its problem was, uh, as you know, uh, the equipment was kind of archaic. It was heavy. Uh, it moved a lot of dirt around. Even though it was only in the strip, it had fairly high maintenance issues. Uh, you, you couldn't. You couldn't really get a very big unit because it was heavy, and it just 
never went anywhere because it had a ton of these niggling little problems. Right. And you know, now I don't think I have enough fingers and toes to count all the people that are building strip till uh, right. equipment. Uh, and some of it really looks really looks neat. Uh, but they, you can get bigger and bigger pieces. Uh, the the maintenance cost, the wear part maintenance cost, is not nearly what it was. Uh, and they've kind of focused on, again, tilling a very, very narrow strip with uh, fairly sophisticated equipment. They have uh, very large equipment. Uh, and in the good old days, it was very heavy. If you tried to get something big, you couldn't transport it. And there really wasn't an adequate way to fold the stuff up without tearing it apart if you bounced down the highway. Right. But today, they have solved many of those problems. The units are... are are somewhat lighter. Uh, they have better materials to build them out of, uh, high-strength uh, tubing, and those sorts of things where you can have something that's very strong but not nearly as heavy as it was way back when. Right. Well, and strip-tills caught in in some areas. We've, we've got some no-tillers with cold, wet soils that are no-tilling soybeans, and they've decided to strip-till their corn which the two of them work pretty well together. In fact, Jim Kinsella, who you mentioned from Illinois, is one of the farmers that's doing that. Yeah. What, what, when we go back to when you were uh, really looking at Basilgram and doing these demonstrations and Jim was doing and then he, these farmers in central Illinois that were using conventional tillage or minimum tillage, what do you think got them to go to no-till? Was it more... The opportunity for narrow rows that sold them on no-till, or was it on? Did they get sold on no-till and then got the narrow rows? I, I think it was the the yield advantage of narrow rows that attracted them, and mm -hmm. then being able to double crop soybeans behind wheat immediately right. without having to lose the time to to do uh, seedbed preparation or lose the uh, moisture. Yeah, or lose, or lose the moisture too. But the, the, the farmer, despite what he will, he, he will tell you, he's attracted to making a buck at the bottom line. You can you can try to convince folks all day long, but if you do something that makes economic sense, that, that they can make economic sense with, they'll be attracted to try it. Whereas right. before, they would walk right by it. We'll rejoin Frank and John in a moment, but I want to take time once again to thank our sponsor, Calmer Cornheads, for supporting our No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. Why pay the high price for a new cornhead when you can yield better results at a fraction of the cost by upgrading your current head with Calmer Cornheads BT Chopper Stock Rolls? As the only stock roll in the industry with a patented feeding chamber in combination with 10 razor-sharp knives, BT choppers cut, chop, and shear corn stalks into confetti-like residue for faster decomposition, easier planting, and higher yields. Solve your cornhead problems for good and place your order today by calling 309-629-9000 or visit their website at calmercornheads.com. Before we get back to the conversation, Frank is going to share a little-known no-till farmer fact. In the early 1970s, Jim Smith worked at the John Upstead Hospital in Butner, North Carolina. He managed 11,000 acres in the production of milk, eggs, and meat in feeding the mental hospital's 3,000 patients. Smith was no-tilling corn in the sod one day in April when a neighboring farmer stopped and asked what he was doing. He told the grower he was no-tilling corn. 
The farmer didn't say anything to Smith, but drove to the hospital's office and told the general manager that one of the mental patients was running a planter through an alfalfa sod field and needed to be locked up. The general manager later related this story to Smith. But there's more to the story than that. Sometime in late July, the farmer once again visited the farm and told the hospital general manager the corn that had been no-tilled into the sod was looking darn good and maybe it would be okay to let the patient out of lockup. And now we'll get back to the conversation with Frank and John Ty. You've spent your career down in Texas. Why hasn't no-till caught on more so across the South? Well, to some extent, cotton is the, is the dominant crop. Sure, right. The cotton farmers have gone, uh, I guess, much more to, to strip-tilling cotton now so that you mm -hmm. don't have to go through the complete tilling process. So some of them are, are to the point that it's, it's nearly no-tilling cotton in with the particular strip-till products that they have. Right. Uh, as you move across like other parts of the South, farmers will tell you that the weeds are just tougher. Yeah. Uh, it's easier to kill weeds in Illinois than it is in Arkansas and Louisiana. Right. I don't know if that's true or not, but they really have some pretty obnoxious weeds down in that part of the country. And again, the key to no-till is being able to keep the weeds from overtaking you if you don't plow. Right. So one of the controversies we have right now is glyphosate and Roundup on whether it's safe or not. Some lawsuits are going on. Bayer bought out Monsanto, and besides getting the product, they got all these lawsuits. If we yes. had to curtail our use of Roundup, which is really important in no-till today, could no-till survive? I think it probably can because the chemical companies will come up with something else. Right. And if you look at the, the amount of... Yeah. Roundup, as an example, that was sold. Mm -hmm. uh, that was one of the reasons that truly attracted Bayer to get their checkbook out and spend as much as they did and fight as hard as they did right. to, to get Monsanto. And I, you know, I, I still use Roundup to this day to kill the weeds in the parking lot at my, my office. Don't don't have any concern about it. But if in fact it slowly gets pushed out of the way, the chemical companies, I, while I don't know this, I'm willing to bet you. They have dozens of scientists busily at work right now in laboratories and test areas finding the next thing that is going to keep no-till farmers coming back to buy their chemical. Well, we already got Liberty and Liberty Link, which is an option. Somebody told me recently, he said, uh, yes, there are some problems and concerns right now with Roundup, but you got to remember one thing. Roundup is a herbicide that kills more weeds than anything else we got on the market right now. Yeah. So uh, you mentioned your office. You got out of the Thai drill business some time ago. What are you doing now? Well, <laughs> as little as I can is my standard <laughs> answer. Yeah. Uh, I owned a part of uh, Bigham Brothers up until sure. about uh, five years ago, uh, mm -hmm. and they were they were very big in the strip till business for cotton. Sold that. Uh, sold my interest in that business. And so now, I guess I, I'm, I'm doing what I term like community service. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm, I'm, I'm on a number of nonprofit boards. I'm on the board of uh, an entity that now owns a closed Air Force base in Lubbock that we are trying to convert and privatize. I still sit on like three or four boards of companies sort of in the business. Uh, sort of a couple of bank boards. Mm-hmm. 
uh, again, small, small rural banks. But uh, again, for, for a guy who doesn't do anything, I stay really busy at it. <laughs> well, it's kind of like me. I'm old enough to retire, but I still enjoy coming to work. I try to take a day and a half off each week, but it doesn't always happen. And I sometimes tell my wife, I keep our marriage going by me going to work sometimes. So. <laughs> yeah, I think if I didn't have an office to go to, my wife would find me one. Right, right, right. But yeah, I, I have a good friend who owns a company. It's a public company in uh, in Ohio. He said, you know, I used to work just half a day uh, back when I was really involved in the company. And I said, gee, you've done a really good job for working half a day. And he said, yeah, 12 hours should be enough to be able to get it in. <laughs> and so, so now he, his, his son is the CEO. He is the chairman. And he said, I really do just work half days. I, I come in in the morning and I leave at noon. And right. he said, you know, my, my son cut my paycheck in half after doing that. <laughs> and I said, well, you, you still need to come to work and you still need something to do. And he said, well, yeah, I do. My birthday here next month, I'll be 93. Wow. And uh, that's, that, he said, that, that keeps me going. Yeah. Something to be said for having having a place to get up and go every morning and something to do. Right. Talking about cotton, I interviewed John Bradley, uh, who ran the Milan station for a number of years and then worked for Monsanto in cotton in the South for a number of years for this series a few weeks ago. And he made an interesting comment about some of the cotton growers he had worked with in Texas. And I think some of these were going strictly no-till or strip-till, but he said... <clears throat> At first, they were really hard, really hard to sell on this. But he said after three or four years, they would call up and thank him for getting into no-till. But he said the reason that they were calling me and telling me the thanks was really interesting because they would say, no-till cotton changed my lifestyle. Instead of, instead of working six or seven days a week, we're now trying to work five days. And if we have to do something on Saturday, we do. But he said the real benefit for to these farmers that they were telling him about was all of a sudden they had time to go to their kids' baseball games, their daughter's dance recital, etc. And, and he said they were they were really preaching that no-till had changed their lifestyle. And you, you don't hear that very often. Well, no, you, you, you don't. But in fact, it really is working, then that should be one of the benefits of it. Absolutely, right. Yeah, I, I don't know that I've heard anybody say that either, but <laughs> it, it certainly makes sense. Okay. Well, I want to thank you for doing this for us, and uh, this would be a big interest. There are a lot of people remember you from the 70s that uh, would be interested in hearing the history of Ty and what you're doing today. So thanks very much, John, for doing this for us. Okay, take care. Goodbye, Frank. Before we wrap up this episode, here's Frank once more answering a listener inquiry. With the wet ground we had this spring and the fact that many farmers didn't get all their acres planted, it's going to be interesting to see whether no-till has a big benefit or not. I'm betting it will, and the fact that cover crops were used on some of this land allowed a lot of growers to get their crops in that they wouldn't have been able to do if they hadn't been no-till. However, at the same time, conditions were so bad that some no-tillers definitely didn't get acres planted and there's going to be some interesting conversations on how to get this land back into production for the coming year. Thank you to Frank Lesseter and John Ty for today's conversation. 
If you enjoyed today's episode, we hope you'll consider joining us for the 28th Annual National No-Tillage Conference next year in St. Louis, Missouri from January 7th through the 10th. Visit notillconference.com to register. Again, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Calmer Cornheads, for helping to make this No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at jakegerlock at lessetermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2404. And don't forget that Frank would love to answer your questions about no-till and the people and innovations that have made an impact on today's practices. So please email your questions to us at listenermail at notillfarmer.com. Once again, if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or the Google Play Store to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. For Frank Lesseter and our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm Managing Editor Julia Gerlach. Thank you for listening.